Hello, it's Thursday 30th of November. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowman and I will be reflecting on travel across Southeast Asia in 2023 with our special guest, Vincent Fitchett Vadakan. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So today, we're going to revisit some of the key themes in travel and tourism across Southeast Asia in 2023 with Bangkok-based travel and culinary journalist Vincent Vichit Vadakan. Vincent also leads and moderates many of the interesting travel and current affairs events at the Foreign Correspondence Club of Thailand. So Vincent, thanks so much for coming back onto the Southeast Asia Travel Show. How are you doing today? And where are you right now? Thank you so much for having me back. Um, I'm doing great. Um, Working a lot, busy, very busy. And right now I'm home in Bangkok, which is something that's a little unusual uh, uh, in my schedule in the last uh, couple of months. (laughs) A short stop or are you uh, heading off again soon? I'm heading off the day after tomorrow for Phuket. Wow. Okay. So we've got plenty to talk about. You've been zooming around the region for the last 18 months. We're going to catch up with some of the things that you've been seeing and observing. But Vincent, you were last on the show back in April 2022, all that time ago. Uh, It seems like a different world now. Tourism then was starting to recover. What what have you noticed in the the past 20 months? How does it feel in tourism now? Have, Have travel patterns normalized? Does normalization even exist? What was What does it feel like right now? Yeah, I, I don't know what normal is, and I don't know what, you know, fortunately, one of the phrases we don't hear anymore is new normal. It feel, I mean, when you're, when I'm in airports, when I'm going to hotels, when I'm going to new destinations, I see people, I see activity, I see things going on. It's all anecdotal. I mean, what I see at, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon might be totally different at 9am, or it might be totally different, you know. Um, and you know, and that's the case um, in in some airports. Particularly, you know, you can see that there are airports that are struggling at certain times of the day or at certain uh, certain periods. And so there's so there's no there's no blanket rule. There's no um, overall blanket statement you can make about about travel in Southeast Asia right now. But it feels good when when I'm on the road. It feels good. It feels like people are engaged. Are are traveling, are doing things. Um, there's some exceptions, and we'll talk. I mean, we could talk about the elephant in the room is always China. We could talk about some of those things if you want. But um, it's interesting. It's interesting to see that things have come back so quickly. Yeah, I totally know what you mean, Vincent, when it comes to different times and airports seeming different. So um, Gary and I were both flying through KLIA just a few days ago, and I took a picture as I was about to leave an enormous queue um, leaving for immigration. Um, Huge. Busiest I've seen it um, for a long, long time. And Gary took a picture the next morning when he was flying through and it was completely empty. So yeah, there's different perceptions, isn't it? Yes. So all of these, I mean, maybe this is, this should be part of my answer. All of these questions about how does it feel and they are, just about the time, you know, they're not representative of anything. They're representative of the minute that you are there when, you, when you're waiting for a taxi, when you're waiting for your bags, when you're uh, checking into a hotel. They don't say anything about where the industry is right now or where, you know, how people are traveling or what they're thinking. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great point. So to move on, you know, we 
got this new prime minister in Thailand. You're you're based in Thailand, um. So I'm I'm curious. You know, he's he's made a big shakeup, obviously, of visa policies and everything else. Um, but how is the tourism industry perceiving um the new prime minister? Are they satisfied with these kind of changes that have been taking place? Um, I would say that it's a little too early to say um, for a couple of reasons. One, it took a long time to get the government in place uh, because of a lot of political wheeling and dealing in the country. Um, so the, the, the current government has not been uh, active for, uh, for very long, just, uh, just about two months. There have been a lot of policies uh, announced. But I would also say that overall, the hospitality industry and the tourism industry in Thailand is very practical. It's very pragmatic. Um, they will be happy if the results are there, if the tourist numbers go up, if the government is supportive of what they do, if uh, you know, TAT continues to, to support and market the destination in an effective way. On the other side, think you know, if minimum wage doesn't go up so much that it uh, hits their bottom line, uh, because one, one of the policies is an increased uh, minimum wage up to about 400 baht a day, I think, depending on where you are in the country. So I'd, I'd say that the industry is going to wait and see. They, they, they will judge on actions and on results, not, uh, not on policies and announcements. Yeah, that's a very thoughtful answer, Vincent, and, and thoroughly plausible. Along the same theme, Hannah and I were talking about this last week. You know, Thailand has been coming out with policies all year. It's a policy machine, really, when it comes to tourism. Uh, and the new idea is soft power. There are 11 soft powers, uh, which it's using to promote the country. Some of these are kind of rehashes of previous campaigns. But the interesting thing, I think, is this focus on soft power. It lends quite liberally from the Korean idea of creating soft power in culture and, and fashion and, and lifestyle and using that in tourism. Now, what, what's the feeling about this in, in Thailand at the moment? Is this something that could work? Well, so what I was going to say is that's not entirely what they're saying. The 11 soft power points are not to promote tourism. Tourism is actually one of the 11. I don't know if you've, if you've seen the list. It's to promote the country and the, and the country's economy. When you see things like food and fashion and um, um, sports and books, it's not necessarily to promote tourism specifically. It's to promote the whole country. The other thing that I'd like to add is that, I mean, it's easy to point to, um, or, or, or you know, Korea is a very successful platform for soft diplomacy and for soft power. Uh, Thailand has been doing that for over 20 years in a very different field uh, but very, very proactively in food. Um, and Thailand has a program, um, the can't remember, it's the Ministry of Commerce or Trade, that um, supports Thais who want to emigrate to open Thai restaurants. And that has been so successful that Thai food is now in the top three favorite foods in just about every country in Europe, in North America, in, in lots of other places. And they're restaurants in just sort of improbable places, uh, in Erbil, in places like, in various places in Africa, uh, but also in, in major markets, like, like in Europe or around the region here. So that plays an indirect role in promoting the country, but it's, it has a direct impact on how people make their travel choices. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we found it interesting because TAT were the ones that earlier in the year that had like these five Fs, 
all about these soft power and then like you say the 11 and tourism is one within that as well so it's it's very but i, I didn't know that about the restaurant and them actually giving yeah, financial incentives to open overseas that's fascinating um so moving on then um and thailand obviously you know they they're at what about 23 million visitors international visitors i think now something like that um next year they're gunning for 40 million um do you think that seems achievable so as i said at the beginning you know one, one of the biggest factors in that will be what the chinese do and of course you two who follow statistics uh so closely you you'll have noticed that you know last week TAT and um, revised downwards the estimate of no, the number of Chinese tourists coming this year. So it's it's now they're aiming for they're hoping for three million, somewhere just over three million, when they were hoping for four to four point five. So it depends. You know, will Chinese tourists come back in larger numbers? And if they don't, who's going to come? You know, are things like visa waivers for? Uh, Indian and Russian tourists going to make a difference? Or is there going to be even more regional and you know, Southeast Asian travelers uh, travel coming to Thailand? You, you in previous shows you've talked a lot about the, the number of arrivals that are just day trips, which are obviously not you know that people don't spend in the same way and impact the same areas when they're just coming for a day trip for lunch and shopping as they do when they're coming to stay for a week or two at the beach. Nobody's measuring that kind of impact. People talk about how much spending they'd like to see, but nobody really knows. Yeah, I would agree with that. So you've, you've crisscrossed Asia over the last year, I guess, from, from Maldives to China. It's, as you said earlier, it's quite difficult to judge when you're in and out of countries. But in terms of like the airports that you've seen and, and the responses that you're, you're finding when you're in cities or in locations, you know, which of the countries have you seen are the busiest? Which ones can you see that, you know, tourism is actually coming back at a probably a stronger rate than others? Well, so starting with home, starting with Bangkok, uh, traffic is worse than ever. The malls are full. Uh, the train, you know, the SkyTrain is full. So it feels very busy. It, it definitely is is a, an, a stark contrast with uh, that period of time when Travelers weren't able to get into Thailand very easily, so there's that. I don't know that I could make any sort of sweeping statements. So I, I was in China, uh, I was in Yunnan, and I was in Guangxi. It's incredibly busy. I mean, Lijiang, old city, is uh, you know, it's hard to cross streets in in the old town. It's entirely pedestrian, but because of the crowds at night with domestic tourists. I was going to say it's a hundred percent domestic. There is virtually no uh, international travel. There is interestingly you know, one of the other things that people are talking about in Thailand is uh, t- uh, Chinese airlines not taking up their slots at airports. That they're they're giving them up because they they don't think that they're going to fill the uh, they're going to need extra flights and need to fill uh, fill those slots. Uh, but interestingly, the only international flight into Lijiang is from Bangkok. And so I took that flight and that particular flight was half empty. I was probably one of three people on the plane who wasn't Chinese, but it's, you know, so, so you know, what does that mean? Does that mean that just that day uh, was a slow day? Did it mean that it was like, it was just a little bit after golden week and Chinese travelers were traveling less to Thailand because clearly those flights are designed to bring people to Bangkok, to Pattaya, to Phuket, not to bring massive Thai tourism to, um, 
to Lijiang or to Yunnan. I think you know, businesses were busy, restaurants were full, uh, villages and the attractions, the mountains. You know, there were there were people everywhere, but they were all domestic. So, is there a way to bring more international tourists to, to that part of China? I have no idea. Yeah, I think that's that's a problem that you've highlighted an interesting problem for the for the Chinese market as well as for the market in Bangkok is the fact that if the volumes of outbound travelers from China just aren't there, which they haven't been this year, then the airlines are going to retrench their flights, um, which means, you know, two ways you're, you're not going to have flights. But the, the, another reason that the airlines have been retrenching flights is simply because they're just carrying one way. They're carrying out of China, not carrying back. Uh, and that just increases operating costs. So, yeah, I think we're, we're far from out of the woods with the Chinese recovery. In fact, I would say it's, it's going to be very, very difficult in the next few months. No, I was, was going to say you know, one other thing though is you know, about the, the, the trip that I made to Yunnan. Clearly, there are investors and people on the ground who think that they can because they're creating these products and these tours through. The, in this particular case, um, it was uh, along a trip along the uh, Tea Horse Road, uh, where one hotel uh, owner has eight properties, and you get to do you know do all these things with a, an English speaking guide, uh, and it's amazing. It's, it's it's an amazing product if they can get people there. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting, isn't it? It's all about those flows and that uh, airlines need the demand from both sides to be able to make these these routes feasible as well. And I'd say you know again talking about you know Thailand and China. Chinese last week announced six new countries that uh, that would have visa waivers, five five in Europe and um, Malaysia. And I think the Thais were a little bit surprised and disappointed that the, it wasn't reciprocal for Thailand because Thailand has extended a visa waiver to the Chinese into the middle of next year. So yeah, that's not going to encourage any more Thai tourism. It, it's still a complicated process to get a visa and to get um, uh, to get into China if you're Thai or if you're any of the other 190 nationalities that don't have a visa waiver for, for China. Yeah, indeed. Um, so we were just talking about airlines and capacity. And I'm sure with all of these many, many trips, you have also flown through many, many airports. Um, so give us a rundown. Which airports that you've been flying through were kind of meeting, maybe exceeding customer expectations, and which have still got to do a lot better? The classic airports that are you know, that are everybody's favorite airports, uh, Changi and Singapore, obviously, uh, it's seamless. Everything works. There are no queues. Everything, everything is practically automated with you know, f- far more terminals to check in and plus all of the lifestyle uh, things in in the airport and in Jewel that make you want to stay in the airport and make, make you want to get to the airport early. Hong Kong works really well still. Um, I landed in the middle of a, a level eight typhoon and the airport was working seamlessly and we landed, which was also great. Uh, the classic... Airports that are sort of uh, worst in class, Saigon, Tansonat is never seems to work particularly well, and is not a particularly appealing place to to spend time. And you can you can spend a really long time trying to get in or out of the airport. Uh, you have to walk from one terminal to the other to get from domestic to you know, there is no check through airside. Uh, they're trying to build this new airport that maybe one day will have a runway or a road getting to it. It's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, so yeah, so so there's you know, there's not a lot that's going to change for that destination. Bangkok, 
surprisingly, uh, for both airports, Danmueng and Suwanapum, work very smoothly. You know, maybe in the years before um, before COVID, it, it, it was a classic complaint to say that the you know, waits were too long and that they, they had nothing to offer in the airports. It's definitely changed a little bit. They're 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 more comfortable and they work better, um, at least in the in the times that I've flown through. Have you flown through Calais at all this year, Vincent? This year, not at all, not yet. I thought you were being too kind to mention that it's not living up to standards, but it's really a mess at the moment. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm way overdue for a, a trip to Malaysia. Cool. Okay, so let's um, let's talk about Vietnam because you've been quite a frequent visitor to Vietnam uh, this year. You know, there's, there's a, within the region, Thailand and Vietnam are often kind of compared to each other in terms of, you know, the, the future of tourism, who's going to go where, uh, are the big markets from China, India going to choose uh, Thailand or Vietnam, South Korea, you know, Japan. What's your sense of visiting Vietnam this year? Because it got off to quite a slow start in terms of its tourism recovery. What have you seen while you've been there over recent months? Um, so I haven't looked at the most recent figures, but apparently, I mean, this year was much better than last. Last year was definitely very slow. And and this number this year they seem to be hitting the numbers that they wanted to be hitting. So that that's already an improvement statistically. Exactly what I said about the airport. Uh, uh, there's so many infrastructure problems and so many issues uh, with transport connectivity. You know the the famous trains in Hanoi and. Uh, and Ho Chi Minh are, are not going to be in any way useful to travelers you know, for years and years to come. And they're already you know, years, if not you know, over a decade, delayed. So, so you know, those are the challenges for Vietnam. It's like the, the sites are there, the cities are there, the food is there, the people are there. Uh, there's just no way to get foreign travelers to give them access to all the all the things that are there and you know, and you know among the infrastructure that's missing you know there aren't that many international hotels there're definitely big groups that are that are going in to get um, management deals and management contracts with big international brands uh, Marriott uh, and Melia are both uh, both have 10 12 property deals with Vinpearl which is one of the biggest uh, if not the biggest uh, company in Vietnam, so you know, so so people are trying. There's there's investment and there's a belief that it will work, but in reality, it's just it's it's just not coming together yet. So it, it it'll still take some time. Yes, I I found out about Melia this week because I was at a, a conference and the 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 APAC, um, I think director for Melia was speaking. I hadn't realized just how many properties they had in Vietnam. I think it's something like 19, but as you say, about 12 of those are kind of these Vinpearl ones. So I found that fascinating. They're the most in Southeast Asia. Yeah. And Accor is talking about expanding. I mean, but again, one of the interesting things, if you know, if you look at the details of Melia, of Marriott, of Accor, very few of these openings are in Hanoi, Ho Chi Minh, Bukok, or Da Nang, which, would, which are the top four uh, destinations. They're all in secondary cities in Nha Trang and uh, in places like um, places like that uh, for the domestic market. So actually, these international brands will be connected, and you'll have your loyalty points and whatever. But they're bringing them in much more for uh, domestic tourism, which is very strong in Vietnam right now. 
Yeah, that's a great point. So talking you know, in general about hotel pipelines, they are very active, not just in Vietnam, but in Southeast Asia. There's lots of openings, signing announcements. Um, you know, and I know that you've been to many new openings in the past few months. So have you seen any new trends around hospitality offerings, design services? Well, one of the things, I mean, and maybe, and maybe this has something to do with the hotels I've been invited to, to see, but um, the tendency for hotel owners to look at international options and to look at international brands. And in particular, if they have standalone hotels, to look at these collection brands, you know, that's definitely something I see a lot of. Um, I was just at the opening of Singapore edition, and that's definitely you know, a hotel that is playing the card of a very individual personality, a very unique place, uh, but under the umbrella of a brand where, where you see things, there are elements of the brand that run through all of the properties. Every, every, uh, every, I mean, some these are just some of the little details, but, um, but in the conditions, in the criteria, uh, to be in addition, every hotel, just about every hotel has a, a punch room, which is one of their bars, but they serve punches. Uh, every hotel has a particular style of lobby bar. Every hotel has a, a pool table, uh, that is a very sleek, granite or marble looking, you know, pool table. But uh, so, so, so it's interesting that that's the way that a lot of owners are looking. Uh, uh, they're not trying to go it alone. What about some of the Asian based hotel groups? You mentioned, I mean, you mentioned the, the Singapore edition, you, you mentioned some of the international brands, Malia, Accor, Marriott. But we, we were speaking earlier, I think a couple of months ago, and you were telling me about particularly some of the Thai based hotel groups, which are you know, being quite aggressive post pandemic. What do you notice in that sphere? So I mean, the best example of that is Dusitani and Dusit International is opening hotels everywhere. So I've been to their new hotel, their new hotels, because they have two uh, in Nepal. One is um, a princess brand hotel, Dusit Princess, which is their sort of four star brand in the middle of Kathmandu, but in a city where there is no, there are no luxury hotels. So it, it is pretty much the nicest hotel in town, along with a couple of other international brands. Um, and they've opened a Dusitani, which is their top of the line premium brand um, in Dulikil, uh, which is about a two hour drive away in the mountains. And it's amazing that they, what they're selling is Thai hospitality in a local setting. And they've done this in Kyoto as well. And the hotel in Kyoto is just drop dead gorgeous. It's, it's, and it, it has a Japanese Zen garden and it has a tea ceremony corner. And uh, it has a fine dining Thai restaurant uh, done by the chefs behind Bolan, uh, Chef Bo and Chef Dylan, uh, the, the uh, famous restaurant here in Bangkok uh, that is also reopening, by the way, here. They also have created this much younger and much more affordable uh, lifestyle brand called Asai. There are two in Bangkok and one in Kyoto. Uh, they're thinking about where they can go next. And I asked, I, mean, I sat down with the CEO a couple of months ago, and she said, uh, and she said uh, that they have already on the books one hotel a month for the next five years. They have one opening uh, on average a month for five years coming. And that was before they signed a deal 
um, to take over uh, a hotel uh, to take over the management of a hotel group in India. So so that's just added to the numbers. So it's you know, it's astounding that this com- this company, which was a very you know family run company. And what's the reason for that, Vincent? Is it just timing? Is it, you know, was this going to happen before the pandemic? Why is it happening now? So, so, um, Kuntsupaji, the CEO, uh, joined the company, I think about 2016 or 2017. And she's very much the driving force behind this. I think the, the family up until that point was quite happy to run the restaurant, the, the, the property they were known for, uh, which incidentally, is also reopening next year. There's this, uh, Dusitani Bangkok was the original one, which was the first five-star hotel in Bangkok in 1970 uh, of an international standard, was demolished uh, in 2019. And um, it's now going to reopen in, 20, in 2024, in the first half of next year. Uh, not with not just with a hotel, but with, a, with retail space, with residential uh, spaces, uh, with green areas. Uh, office space, and the project is absolutely. I mean, I've walked through some of the showrooms. It looks like it's going to be amazing. Uh, I, I can't wait to see what the. It, it's sad to see that the old building is gone, but I can't wait to see what the new projects can look like. And I, so she was the driving force behind all of these developments, uh, I think. And um, they saw an opportunity. They saw a niche that they could fill that nobody else could because they they can offer this sort of gracious Thai. Uh, hospitality. I think those are the words, the, the exact words they use, uh, and that that lends itself so well to so many different places. They've opened they've opened a hotel in Greece. They've opened a, you know, they have tons of hotels in the Middle East. They have, and uh, in the Gulf. And um, so you know, it's amazing how well that translates. And this goes back in a way to what we we're saying about soft power. You know, the image that Thailand has is a totally marketable sellable, presentable image uh, abroad, even in areas that are not necessarily directly related to selling Thailand as a destination or selling Thai food or Thai products. Yeah, you know, I was I was just about to say soft power <laughs> after our conversation earlier, you know, having those those brands overseas is that representation, right? How you have all the American brands, brands or, um, I don't know, Le Meridian. Here and then you go and you expect to have good French food um, or Sofitel or something like that. Um, it's that that same association, right, with the the country. Exactly, it's the same positive Im- image, and and you know it puts Thailand in people's minds as a place that is a world class player. And in the case of hospitality, and in the case of Dusit in particular, that's clearly the clearly clearly the case. So I want to talk about sustainability, <laughs> um, and you know, obviously, it's it's really a buzzword, I think we can say, um, across travel in Southeast Asia. Um, so from what you've seen, do you see it being taken more seriously or is it just a marketing ploy right now? Well, that you know, this is something I talked about at um, the Sustainability Conference uh, FIST in, in Phuket. Uh, I was invited to speak about luxury and sustainability. And my answer, I think much to the dismay of the moderator, was that no, it doesn't sell, you know, the, the fact that you say that you're sustainable, that you have uh, glass water bottles by the bed instead of plastic ones, that doesn't sell your hotel room. It's become, but instead it's sort of become the baseline. You need you know, your savvy, young, especially younger uh, travelers come have come to expect that as 
the absolute minimum uh, that a hotel should be doing. Get rid of single-use plastics, uh, have uh, have something, have a food waste program, have um, solar panels on the roof if you can, have uh, water collection reservoirs if you can, uh, rainwater. So who? So everybody has to do that. What, especially in the luxury sector, in the, the higher end of the, the market, what do you? What else do you need to be doing? And there's really some people who are doing some really interesting things. I mean, Pan Pacific, for example, uh, has just built uh, just opened Pan Pacific Orchard, which is sort of uh, th- this very green building with lots of open spaces it, it's almost it's more it looks like it's more void and empty space and green space than it is building but it's 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 uh it's basically two towers that have been built together with these empty cubes in the middle and it's fascinating and, and they t- and when you're walking through they tell you about what this means in terms of uh, temperature control in terms of uh, uh carbon emission reduction and all the things that they you know, that they hope to do. Is it a huge impact? Uh, is the bottom line huge? The answer is no. Is this the way that all buildings and, and tourism in particular is going to go? The answer is yes. And um, you know, particularly in Singapore, where they're uh, ahead of the curve on zoning regulations, like if you build something new, then a certain percentage of your surface area has to be uh, has to be green. People can't, in, in the middle of Singapore, you can't afford to buy a park next to you know, and keep it empty. So you put the green on your building and, it, and, it's, and, and there are these biophilic buildings and it's fascinating. And, and hotels are the ones that are leading, leading, uh, leading that uh, battle. So wrapping up then, Vincent, we've gone through a lot of subjects today from sustainability to hotel pipelines. We've talked about airports. We've talked about some of the destinations that you've traveled to. Looking back on 2023, I don't know if you... Have you any idea how many destinations you've been to this year? Um, I lost count after 24. 24. Okay. So, so let's, let's do around 25. Of the places that you've been, of the things that you've seen, what, what has pleasantly surprised you this year? And what are some of the standout experiences? So as I said, Yunnan was amazing. So, so the, this, the product I was talking about was from Lux Collective. They have eight different hotels. And in every different hotel, they have at least three different activities you can do. Um, uh, you can go hiking, you can go to the tea plantations, you can do a cooking class, you can visit the old village, you can do arts and crafts, you can go see artisans doing uh, everything from embroidery to uh, pottery, you can go hiking in the mountains, um, have hot pot at the top of the mountain and then hike down. It's such an amazing product. I really, really hope they find a way to get people from outside in, whether it's visa issues of airlift to get people to you know to the destination there's so you know, there's so many obstacles but it's an amazing product uh i mentioned kyoto uh which was a city that i'd never been to before the hotel the dusitani is a beautiful hotel go see it it's this perfect blend of japanese and thai but the rest of the city for me was just this huge discovery and um and especially in terms of food the fact that there's so much local produce uh it's a city where I could be a vegetarian just because the, the vegetables are so amazing. Uh, and the, the farms and the farmland around Kyoto uh, is so amazing. Nepal was a place I was curious about. I would love to go back. I, I guess what's exciting is that it's exciting wherever I go. Uh, everywhere I've been, you, you mentioned that I've been to Vietnam half a dozen times or more this year. I've been to Singapore half a dozen times or more. And at every level, whether it's 
culture or hotels or new restaurants. There's so much happening in all of these places. I, you know, I go back. I go back happily. I'm, you know, I'm going back to Phuket uh, this weekend because uh, Simon Rogan, uh, the three-star Michelin chef from the UK, who also has Michelin star restaurants in a uh, Michelin star restaurant in Hong Kong, is opening uh, a very small, fifteen-seat uh, chef's table, and and I guess that that's what's interesting is that you know, you know these places that were totally not on the map. Uh, in this case, for food, all of a sudden, uh, are tra- uh, these places are attracting international talent, and they're hoping that that will attract more international and more domestic and international tourists. I love your passion, Vincent. Um, so we can't end. I mean, we we're almost in December now. We can't end without asking about what's going to happen next year, and ask you to take a look into your your crystal ball. Um, so, you know. In terms of your personal travel aspirations, where are you planning to travel? You know, what what would you like to to do and see next year? First and foremost, I'm most excited about what is happening in the region. Um, there, as I said, there's just so much happening. I would love to go back to places like the Philippines, um, Cambodia, Laos. Let's visit Laos here next year, and there. It'll be interesting to see what the country. Uh, does to promote that and you know, what's changed because I haven't been back in four or five years. So you know, that first. And then hopefully uh, I'll have time for some trips a little bit further away, get back to get back to France and Italy, which are places that are where I lived for a long time and that are very uh, near and dear to my heart. Uh, get back to North America where I have family and friends and also lots of things to see because I haven't been back there in uh, a number of years so um for me the travel you know travel isn't going to stop in in 2024 will we see you in malaysia next year vincent absolutely as as soon as possible the right answer (laughs) so that brings the show to a close for this week and thank you so much vincent for coming on as i always say you have my favorite guest's name ever <laughs> vincent bitchit vatican just rolls off the tongue um and so we hope you enjoyed the podcast don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discuss with vincent or anything we missed out you can drop us a message on our linkedin page at the southeast asia travel show yep and as always you can catch up with the southeast asia travel shows full back catalog on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com, and you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today, but Gary and I will be back soon to talk more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia. See you then. 